0: What's so, Freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. Sat back down with our good friend Mauricio D. Mio from Ledin.io. Talk about a bunch of stuff. Ledin's recent raise, how they're growing the team, how they're working remotely, how they're doing their proof of reserves, how they're de-risking their their interest rate products, the the type of uh, users they're seeing, how they're seeing uh, transactions within lead and increase, what's going on in Venezuela, inflation, how inflation works, whether or not people realize it, that's a bunch of stuff. A bunch of stuff. You guys are going to enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by our good friends at the daddy fucking cash app. Cash app. It's allowing you stack sats, send sats, receive sats, sell sats if you so please. We're saying sats, 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 sats. Because sats are the standards. 100 million sats in one Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy sats, whole sats. A dollar's worth is about 1,700 sats right now. One cuck buck is 1,734 sats to be exact. And you can buy that on the Cash App right now if you went and did that. Uh, Cash App also enable you send Bitcoin within the app via cash tags if you want to send bitcoin to another cash app user you can do that cash app can be your bank account they're offering account numbers and routing numbers direct deposit your paychecks into the cash app stack sats right away dca in the sats 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 in the cash app if you haven't downloaded it yet make sure you use the code stacking sats that's s-t-a-c-k-i-n-g-s-a-t-s you're gonna get ten dollars and ten dollars gonna to go to our good friends at owls lacrosse that's owls lacrosse Owls across This episode was also brought to you by a good friend at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is making it so you don't have to sell your Bitcoin. If you're in a crunch, you need liquidity. Lend at Hoddle Hoddle is a new non custodial Bitcoin backed lending pro- platform that allows peer to peer lending and borrowing between users globally, anonymously, and on your own terms. Okay, They're leveraging Bitcoin's native multi sig properties to give you a no KYC AML solution to lend. It's available to U.S. To borrow solution to borrow use your Bitcoin as collateral to borrow available to US users uh, again non-custodial anonymous uh, if you're short funds you don't need to sell your Bitcoin get some liquidity by borrowing using your Bitcoin as collateral again and the great thing is you don't need to entrust someone with your funds all right your collateral is going to remain in a multi-sig escrow you hold one key so you have you can prove this not being right rehypothecated being moved okay you control a key. If you have stable coins laying around, you're looking to earn uh, some yield on that. Lend a hodl hodl also allows you to uh, offer those to be lent out to get a return on those. So create your offers and set your own terms at lend.hodl That's lend.hodl Go check them out. This is also brought to you by our good friends at Compass Mining. Compass Mining is working to make sure individuals can mine as easily as possible. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna take away all the obscurity of it. They're gonna help you get a miner, uh, and then they're gonna find a hosting facility for you to plug that miner in with competitive energy cost rates. So uh, they, they they try to make it as easy as possible for you to go from zero to having a miner plugged in and stacking sats for you consistently as possible. They're locking up the the deals with the hosting facilities. They're they're getting a way for individuals to get miners. Okay, they want to help individuals get into the mining game. You pay for the miner, they acquire the miner, after as long as it takes, they plug it in, and then they start streaming sats to your to your wallet that you want them to. So go to compassmining.io, C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io to check out all their offering. They're trying to make it as easy as possible for you freaks. Last but not least, this is also brought to you by good friends of Brains. Brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S r a dot com they're leaders in the mining industry they've been running slush pool since 2013 slush pool first mining pool in existed back in 2018 brains released the first free and open source firmware for ant miner s9 so that miners would have an alternative to bitmain firmware this was important back in the day if you don't remember it was important for this decentralization after the amp lead fiasco of 2017. It was discovered that there was a backdoor in Ant Miner firmware that could give Bitmain the ability to brick your ASICs remotely. Brains did not like that, so they created firmware for S9 owners to to make sure that was not possible. In 2018, Brains verified that S9s could also run 13% more efficiently with overt ASIC boost, and they offered that to their uh clients via brains os a firmware that allows you to stack more sats as a miner uh, it's cost it's custom auto tuning firmware to give miners more control over the a6 again allows them to stack more sats currently supports Antminer s9s s17 and t17 generation and the dev team is working to support what's miners now it should be out soon tm the open source initiative is still going strong brains is leading the way on stratum v2 development alongside matt Carallo and the square crypto team brains has been working They have a working and live implementation of Stratum V2 on SlushPool and is included in the Brains OS Plus firmware if you're running that. Uh, And they also push out a lot of content to educate Bitcoiners about some of the lesser known aspects of the mining industry. So if you're looking to learn more, again, brains.com, B-R-A-I-N-S.com. They've got all this content, they've got these products, they're keeping you abreast of what's going on in the open source community, and they've got profitability tools. If you're a miner and you want to see how profitable you are, Brains is creating really cool calculators to help you uh, visualize and illustrate the opportunity, uh, depending on what mining model, power cost you have, et cetera, et cetera. Check them out. Shout out to all of our sponsors. Shout out to you, Freaks. Thank you for coming back. If you're liking the podcast, please give us a like, a rate, a review, a subscription, Share with your friends. We're looking to get this into as many ears as possible. Uh, just trying to get quality Bitcoin information out there, and I think there's some quality Bitcoin information in this episode. Love all y'all. Enjoy. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. When you talk about a Fed just gone nuts. All all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting
1: like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying
0: attention, you probably should be. You probably should be. Probably should be. probably should be. Mauricio, how the hell are you?
1: Doing great, man. Doing great. How about yourself?
0: Doing well. Very excited. Rip three third time back a lot has happened since the last time we spoke since the last time we met in person with adam
1: mm-hmm.
0: was that the last time we went yeah adam was with us in brooklyn yeah drinking that some was. uh drinking some venezuelan rum
1: sure yeah I, I didn't get a chance to send you over a bottle this time
0: it's okay it's it's wednesday afternoon <laughs> as you know it's uh it's probably not not uh great to be drinking on a wednesday afternoon when you have a young child
1: <laughs> i am very familiar with that welcome to fatherhood <laughs>
0: yeah it's uh you got to change a lot right you can't just be getting drunk all the time recording podcasts it, uh, people frown upon that you can't be the drunk dad
1: but it comes with a lot of great benefits
0: <laughs> uh, the the benefits far outweigh uh not being able to drink at random hours of the day to record podcasts Definitely. what's going on dude like uh like i said a lot has happened between the last time we spoke and today you guys are crushing it at leaden yeah, uh, recently uh, raised some money, expanding the team, expanding your your product suite, introducing proof of reserves. Where it's been around for a while, but really driving home like how you guys are doing it, explaining it, and then um, doing some interesting stuff on on the interest bearings side as well. Um, based off the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's been a lot. Lots has changed since we last spoke. I believe the last time we chatted was uh, September, 2019 or something like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: so that was, you know, I think we were, we were probably just over a year old or or even just a year turning a year old at that time, uh, for Latin. Uh, and I think, you know, now we've been, you know, we, we underwrote Canada's first Bitcoin back loan in, uh, late 2018. And, uh, since then, you know, we've been really preaching, to people you know, the benefits of Bitcoin-backed loans uh, and you know, why they could be useful. Uh, from there, we set up our Bitcoin savings account. And uh, following that, we set up B2X, which is a loan to buy more Bitcoin, uh, which is a product that really resonated with our clients. Um, and then after that, we launched uh, our USDC savings account. Um, and, uh, and I guess most recently, yeah, yeah we closed that financing round. Um, earlier this year, which, which brought in some really great investors, you know, the likes of uh, White Star Capital, uh, Coinbase Ventures, uh, an affiliate of Susquehanna, CMT Digital, uh, Kingsway Global Founders Capital. So that really brought a lot of expertise, both on the product side and on the strategic side. Um, you know, some of the some of these people are, are uh, involved in the lending space, like CMT and, and the Susquehannas of the world, uh, and some others have uh, great geographic expertise, like in the case of Kingsway, they're they're very big in Africa and other frontier markets. Uh, and Coinbase, of course, you know they have great you know great pulse of the space and they really understand it. Uh, so th- you know we thought that was a great mix of of groups to bring together. Um, and, you know we we announced that round, like I said, uh, I believe it was mid January, uh, and since then we've been really hard at work. Uh, building out the team, essentially growing our team. I have some exciting uh, uh, news to share on that front too. If somebody will be joining us, we'd we'll share that maybe in a little bit. Um, but the other piece that we're incredibly proud of is our proof of reserves, uh, you know, structure. Uh, we did the first proof of reserves attestation ever for a lending company uh, with Armonino LLP, which they're pretty—they're uh, great, by the way. Uh, you know, I really love working with them. And uh, and yeah, so I think that that has resonated with our clients. Um, you know, they, they we like to build things that people ask for. Uh, that's really the only way we grow and get better. Uh, but that that's really what we've been, uh, and we've grown a lot. Um, you know, uh, our clients are growing at about twenty five percent month over month. Um, yeah. And uh, and then on 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 the you know as far as like assets in the platform goes, uh, you know, we've pretty much um, I want to say almost twenty x where we were, uh, you know, a few months ago. <laughs> uh so the the growth has been pretty uh pretty phenomenal uh and people really seem to have been waking up to you know borrowing against your bitcoin like uh you know popularized i guess in a certain in a way by michael saylor uh and uh and and earning earning interest on your bitcoin that's also become uh you know a, a sort of activity that more people are seeking out to do so you know we, we've been also you know we've been in a way kind of paddling ahead of that wave uh for a few years now and and now that that it's formed you know we're just standing up and surfing it you know
0: oh yeah and that's i mean huge topic in the space obviously right now is like the risk management around all of the this and that's why i wanted to bring you on specifically to talk about like your proof of reserve at attestation and there's obviously a bunch of competitors in this particular space and each has a different um way of articulating uh, the risk management of their products and, and and providing different ways of of basically de-risking these products and making co- customers uh, comfortable with engaging with them so like let's start with like proof of proof of reserves like how are you guys making this possible and like what uh, peace of mind is it bringing to your customers specifically
1: yeah great question so the proof of reserve at the station that we did with Armeno LLP, um, the, the 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 intent of this act of this exercise is to essentially have Armenino as an independent third-party accounting company uh, and uh, and an auditor, et cetera, but they you know they they they're coming in to let in. They are assisted by management because, obviously, we have to uh, facilitate their access to some information. Um, all of this is done, by the way, in an anonymized way, in a private way. Um, all, of the, all of the, essentially, the client data is anonymized. So it, just for privacy's sake, we're very, for, we're very big on that. Uh, we don't want any data that, that people don't need access to to be getting out there. Um, so when they come in, essentially, we facilitate their access to this anonymized data. So that they can basically confirm the balances that clients have on the lead-in platform, and we also essentially uh, get to show them, or they get to see our lending agreements with our lending counterparties. They get to see our custody agreements and our custody balances, and they get to see our trading balances as well. So the the point of this whole exercise is to tally up all the uh, assets that leadin and has on behalf of clients on the platform. And to look at all the assets that Lenin has, either on its lending relationships or on its trading or on its custody, and make sure that Lenin, in, in fact, has more assets in custody, lending, trading than they, do, uh, than they owe essentially back to clients. And um, for how a Lenin client can verify that is that an anonymized ID or an anonymized hash for that particular proof of reserves attestation is provided to Lenin clients on the platform. So they can essentially take that ID, go to the Armonino Trust Explorer website, which is uh, owned and managed by Armonino LLP. They input their hashed ID, and they can confirm that their balance as of the day of the attestation matched exactly with what they have on the platform. And any client with a balance or an active loan can do this. And so that gives a client the peace of mind of knowing that their assets are properly accounted for uh, internally at Levin.
0: And how, how often are you guys doing these attestations?
1: Every six months.
0: Oh, nice. Awesome. Yeah. And so what's it been like building that, that particular, I mean, you, you mentioned that you had to come in management, had to help out your, your third-party auditor. What's that process like? Was it, was it teaching them a lot about Bitcoin? Were they sort of up to snuff with how everything works or uh, how much hand-holding was there?
1: No, it's a great question. So we were the first lender to ever do this. So they, they didn't, uh, you know, they, there was a bit of learning. There was a little educating essentially on, you know, how to assess the assets the client have on platform, how to assess the balances that Lenin has on either its lending counterparty or its trading counterparty or its custody counterparty. And so there was a bit of us educating them about how our business works on the backend and where they need to essentially go look. Uh, and, and making that information available to them, um, and they—they—they're actually really up to speed on what Bitcoin is, what an ERC-20 token is. Um, so they, they're very knowledgeable about that. What, what we had to do a little more, uh, I guess, educating on was like essentially the inner workings of our business. Like, you know, how do we earn that yield? It, it gets lent out to counterparties like Genesis. Okay, where, you know, what are those balances? Can we see them? How do we verify that those balances are actually true? So they, there was a bit of educating on, on what the key pieces that they had to essentially focus on were. But once they got it, and once the structure is set, it makes the ongoing attestations much easier to manage. Right. The, the first one was obviously the hardest because there, you know, there was no set structure for it. But now that we've worked out a model, it becomes much easier. And that's why we wanted to do this very early on. Because the more the business grows, the more, uh, you know, counterparties you add, the more activities you start adding, it becomes more and more work to, you know, verify all these uh, balances and to basically come back to a holistic view that, you know, gives the client, you know, a, a very precise uh, response, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's like naturally leads to the next question. is like, how do you manage the risk of bringing on new counterparties and interacting with them and distributing Bitcoin on the other side of the book?
1: Yeah, so w- one of the things that we did as part of this race is we started building out our lending desk, essentially. So one of the people that started today uh, was actually John Glover. So John uh, has a wealth of experience setting up the, uh, the FX uh, markets or, sorry the fx desk for barclays most recently in canada he, he'd also set up the fx fx uh, desks and derivatives desks for um, tv actually both in canada and in london um, and so he's he's been in this space for you know a really really long time uh, he's seen the um, he's basically he's incredible uh risk analysis and risk management so he's he joined us as our chief risk officer uh and he will be leading the build out of that desk as we you know until until very recently and even just now uh Genesis has been essentially our primary counterparty on the lending size uh but just given the sheer size that we're getting to now um uh, you know we are exploring essentially diversifying that risk to, to other high quality and amazing counterparties. Um, you know, some of them are actually already in our in our cap table, like you know, the Susquehannas of the world. Uh, and, and essentially getting to um, a place where we can offer the, the exact same quality or even better, always continually try to improve the quality of our counterparties, um, but doing that in a way that is sustainable and that manages risks in an in, in an optimal way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like I wonder what John thinks about the, I mean, you can't speak for for John directly, but like, that's just going through my head, like coming from like an FX desk desk to a Bitcoin desk, like the nature of the assets, Bitcoin being the super collateral and FX currencies being, being a bit different, like um, obviously in nature, like how does he view the difference in, in, in approaching that like risk management in your mind or how, do you, how would you view it? It's probably a better question because you can't speak for him um, having to deal with all these, these risks.
1: Yeah, so I think the FX market has a lot of similarities to the Bitcoin market, perhaps more so than even the stock market. And mm-hmm. that's for a few reasons. Obviously, they trade 24-7. Um, uh, there's, def- there's different venues at which these currencies trade. So it, there's not really a one source of truth for a particular pair of exchange currencies, so in that sense, I think there's a lot of similarities. Um, there's obviously a, an added uh, element of volatility when it comes to Bitcoin, um, but that is, is volatility is is really a problem as much as there's a liquidity problem, right? Because you know, as long as the asset, as long as the asset has deep liquidity, like as long as you can still book trades for very meaningful um, amounts. So, you know, it, it, back when we had March 12th last year, uh, there were trades getting booked at the worst hour that Bitcoin has seen, and they were getting <laughs> filled like no problem. So I think for for many lenders last March presented really a testifier for all the risk systems. Um, but coming out of that, I think a very interesting thing to see was that Bitcoin liquidity held up like, like a champ, you know, at, at all times you were able to essentially, uh, even if you were in a position where you had to execute on, on on some sales to protect the risk, which many lenders were in the position of having to do back in that time, um, you were able to do that, right? Um, it, it really became a, man, a, a matter of managing that client relationship, right? Because the, the move happened so drastically uh, that, you know, Inevitably, there were a few clients that couldn't respond in time or didn't have the additional Bitcoin to cover. So they were, you know, they did suffer. Uh, so it's really, uh, it wasn't really so much a matter of, oh my God, are, are we going to be able to, uh, you know, place these sales so that we can protect the business in the book? It was more about once this happened, you know, how do you go to your client and explain why you had to do this and that, that this is, you know, this is what had to happen. Uh, so it, it was really, there were a lot of learning lessons from, from that experience, but uh, but yeah, I think, you know, I I would, I would say that above anything else, Bitcoin liquidity is, is a is a way in a way, a bit of an antidote against its volatility.
0: Right. So that's what I was doing while you're explaining that, like obviously literally a year and a week ago today or around. So you had that event and market cap, starting Monday March 16th 2020 of bitcoin was 103.9 billion today it stands at 1 trillion 680 billion or excuse me 68 billion like we've literally added a trillion dollars in market cap in one year which is pretty insane to think about um uh, like so what does that do for liquidity i guess this is a good question like yeah, so the, the dollar amounts gone up by 100 trillion with the free float of Bitcoin has arguably significantly fallen as people locked them up and put them in treasuries. How does the free float liquidity and the dollar amount liquidity sort of play together in your mind?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, as, as more sophisticated investors with very big balance sheets start participating in the Bitcoin markets, I think that only. Helps liquidity because to your point about even even liquidity that gets you know put in a treasury uh, you know locked up and put in treasury and stuff that you know even even those companies right like they're doing they're doing they're taking these positions to protect the the reserves they already have right and to optimize the reserves that they already have. Um, I, I don't think that there is a scenario where you know. Um, what I'm saying is that these the, the, these companies or these entities that are participating in this market, I view them as um, very sophisticated participants. So if there's ever an opportunity for them to, um, you know, either participate in in the, or provide some of that Bitcoin to help out with liquidity and make an, a little bit extra doing that, that's great. But the other piece of that is like, as you get more sophisticated people join the market, you get uh, evolution on settlement times, right? So, you, you know, whereas before you might need to have assets on platform to settle, when you have X billion Bitcoin on your treasury and you want to place a sell order, a lot of brokers are going to say, okay, like you can, we'll take T plus one, T plus two from you guys. And in a way, you know, even though those Bitcoin are locked up somewhere, it doesn't mean that they're taken away from the liquidity pool. Like those Bitcoin could still transact with the right brokerage relationships. And so I think all in all, it it, does, it just improves liquidity all around.
0: Yeah. And again, adding a trillion dollars in market cap in a year is pretty insane, right? Like literally a trillion dollars. And everybody's going crazy when you hit the trillion dollar market cap earlier this year. But it's like, we hit 1.1 trillion and we've been floating like below and above that a little bit for the last few weeks. And <laughs> it added a trillion dollars in a year.
1: Well, how much has the Fed added?
0: Yeah, that's a good good point, right? <laughs> Owns.
1: Uh, yes. Now we got two more coming for infrastructure.
0: Right. That, that. But that, that's why I love speaking to you, particularly because you have very good insights. Not only, I mean, we were talking about before we hit record, you guys have been putting out a weekly newsletter and some YouTube content for LED In, and you've been jumping into Fed policy and being very uh, on top of that. But you also have insight in the international markets as well. Um, being up in Canada, obviously, and then Latam, um, just having some personal and, and professional exposure to that market. Like, how how is all this Fed money printing and, and like affecting like what's going on uh, in Latam up in Canada? I mean, Canada's printed an insane amount of money as well.
1: Yeah, Canada's printed an insane amount of money. Um, not so much Latam. Yeah. Right. And and
0: but are the, I guess the point I was trying to make, like, are the uh, the customers down there reacting to what's going on here?
1: Right. They they are. I mean, there's a couple of dynamics at play, right? So to speak to Canada just briefly, right? Like we have the usual signs of of um, you know call it financial symptoms uh, in the economy when you print a lot of money, right? Like real estate markets through the roof. Um, you know, they're tightening up mortgage rates, try to cool down the market, uh, rentals are hitting rock bottom. So like what, what you're really just seeing the explosion of the wealth gap, right? Like the, the second you say, you know, rentals are going lower because people can't support to live in these places, but at the same time, property prices are skyrocketing because those guys that have assets are just doubling down, like taking another HELOC, buying another house, um, that just fuels the wealth gap, right? And, and in Canada, it's kind of, it's kind of an, uh, a good uh, exp- not experiment, but it's a good subject to study uh, to see the, the type of side, uh, the consequences, I guess, of, of printing money. Like you're helping some, but you're, you're helping people in one way, but you're also hurting them in another way, right? Like there's always a trade-off. And I think people focus a lot on, you know, can you get me this free money now? But they don't necessarily think what that money is going to cost me in the future, right? Um, that that is interesting to watch, uh, you know, to say the least. Here in Canada, um, in Latin America, one thing that I fr- frankly I found surprising was that it, it doesn't typically happen that the U.S. is the top printer, <laughs> right? Like uh, typically, as the U.S. is printing, other places are printing more because they have bigger problems, mm-hmm. right? what i what I think is is kind of you know in a way been a bit like a, more of a paradigm shift for for people that are you know used to looking at inflation and studying inflation elsewhere and, and comparing it to the u s is that the u s has has essentially stimulated its economy so much that it's poised to even outgrow China this year like think think about that for a second <laughs> um, that's my
0: yeah,
1: yeah. And so typically when you have these like inflationary waves, they are, they tend to be a bit of a global phenomenon um, because, you know, places like, typically if somebody like the US is having to print, then somebody like Mexico who like exports to the US or somebody like, you know, Colombia or Venezuela that are in the same sim- or a similar boat, they, you know, theory would say they have to do the same or more to kind of keep it up, right? What's been happening now is that the US has just been relentlessly printing and relentlessly stimulating their economy. And you have places like Mexico who are not. And what that's done, and, and more so, I'm not, I'm not sure how much of it is because of Mexico, and I'm not sure how much, how much of it is because the Fed wants it to be this way. But when you look at the foreign exchange rates for the peso, it's gotten stronger over the last year. Um, like the Mexican peso, the Colombian peso. So, to me, like I have to check back, but I, I think the Brazilian real is probably not not in the same boat because they've had you know a, 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 a little bit more issues to deal with. But that's one thing that I that I've found fascinating, which is that inflation fears seem to be higher in the U.S. than they are in other places right now. And by sheer virtue of the U.S. being such a, a powerful and wealthy market, their fears of inflation have driven up assets like Bitcoin and have driven up assets <clears> like <throat> the stock markets, right? And it's when, when people see that and there's fear of inflation on the dollar, well, that trumps fear of inflation pretty much in any other currency, right? And yeah. so people start running to hide or to protect themselves from inflation. Um, you know, many have found Bitcoin. Many have found, uh, you know, stocks and, and equities. But, uh, but I think this is a trend that will probably continue so long as the Fed continues to print.
0: Yeah. I think I'm looking at it right now. Mexican peso at one point was like 25% stronger against the dollar, like in three yeah. like from March yeah. to December. It's pretty crazy. No, I mean, that's a, the weird thing about it, too. Like, again, I've said it many times on this podcast. Like, it, what, like the Fed and the Treasury now, with the, the, the overt stimulus, they just did 1.9, now they wanna do 3.9 trillion right after it um, for infrastructure and more more airdrops. At what point socially, like, and that's another, another question I've had proposed on this podcast, particularly with an oil, oil guy and us, Ohaji, like at what point do other countries start looking at what's going on here and being like, ah, eh, this is not good uh and like particularly like oil markets like at what point are some countries going to denominate their oil sales and dollars but settle on a different currency like bitcoin or something else um i'm just rambling here but it is this is really weird interesting period we find ourselves in like a lot of people say the u.s dollars a reserve currency will never lose that status um and they'll point to like just the amount of money printing and how little it showed up in official inflation but I, th- I think anybody who's actually gone to the grocery store talks to anybody building things, you know, that inflation is, is rampant right now. And at what point does like the social aspect of all this kick in and people just begin to openly question, like, what the fuck is going on? Like, should we be depending on the dollar like we have in the past?
1: I, I have a bit of a polemic answer to that one. Uh, and if you look at my, my Twitter profile, it's actually a posted tweet that I've had for over two years and is bad money never dies. <laughs> it, just, it just resets. Um, people, when, when people, and this is something, I guess, that I took away from a Venezuela experience, people don't associate their problems with their currency. Um, they, they associate it with the government, they associate it with their boss, they associate it with their landlord, but rarely do they make the connection that I'm being held back from wealth because of this currency, uh, and and there's, that happens for a few reasons, and perhaps that may change, but I'll tell you one of the big reasons that I thought that was happening in Venezuela is because governments, particularly authoritarian governments, they, the first thing they do and a sign of concern is they go after censorship on the media, like, or in the media, right? And they do this in a way where after a certain point of time, they control the narrative across most media right? Because they can even sanction what Twitter, when tw- where Twitter is available. I remember back in my days in, in 2013, 2014, the Chavismo, you know, I don't know how to call it, cartel um, was essentially in, deep in Twitter. Like if you logged into Venezuela on any given day and you opened up Twitter, that, the trending hashtags would be Chavez, I love you, mm-hmm. or I swear to God, and and it, it got to a point where I actually had to stop using Twitter because I found it so repulsive uh, to see how and, and think about that for a second. Like you're a person in Venezuela, you're you're trying to show the rest of the community or the or your, or your country that the the fiscal decisions and the governmental decisions that are being made are going to take you down a path of destruction. And you have Chavez literally nationalizing companies on pro, on, pro, on national television, like pointing a finger, being expropriate. and and the next day you had the trending topics on Twitter. I love Chavismo, you know, Maduro, Chavez mi presidente. Like and these outrageous quotes on this. And they they did it almost to like spite you. Like, you know, you would log on and it was so disheartening. It was just it was like a blow to your stomach, right? To like to see these things happening. And then because you know, you could I was sitting there being like, these, these are bots. Like these are bots, these, they, this, there's no way the people that are out there, they don't even have a phone. They don't even have a computer. Like how are they tweeting? <laughs> <laughs> and so it was just so blatant. And, um, and it, was, it was so hard because everywhere you looked, it was like, you turn on the TV and it was like Chavez smiling. It's like, yeah, we're gonna expropriate that building. We're gonna expropriate that farm. That's gonna go to you, Maria. And that's gonna go to you, Miguel. And you're gonna have your farm. And, and then you're saying, okay, no, that, that's, you can't just like fabricate things. Like these people have to know how to run the farms. Like what happened in PDVSA, um, or what happened in many, many cases that something got expropriated in Venezuela was Chavez came, you know, the, the union was mad at the bosses and Chavez came like, okay, we're going to take this over. Union is now the owner of this factory, right? Go ahead, union, you know, go get them. And the union would go at it you know and they would try to do their best but eventually they were like guys the money the, this business not making any money it's like chavez it's like we need your help here bro because you know this business doesn't really make money and chavez was like you know like sorry guys like you know it's like what do we do now right and that, it to you. yeah and that happened on and on and what ended up happening is that we destroyed the productive apparatus Entirely, like, you know, the example that I gave you were, you know, a couple of high profile farms, a couple of high profile like dairy companies, uh, because food became, it started with food, food was, food became the first sort of uh, national security issue. And and on that premise, they started nationalizing food companies. Um, Then, uh, I'm not sure if that was before or after oil, I think the first one was oil, because oil was like the first national security strategic thing that they did, and he basically wiped out all of the PDVSA staff. So PDVSA was Petroleos de Venezuela. And one of the first things he did is he fired everybody at PDVSA. Uh, because PDVSA, PDVSA essentially, once he took office, PDVSA went on a strike. They said, okay, you know, these policies are a little bit crazy. You know, the, you know, we are the engine, the economic engine of the country. And we're taking a stand to basically let you know that we don't agree with some of these things that you're doing, right? Instead of going to talk to them, and figuring out how to keep the top professionals there, he went and said, "Oh, you really? You don't like what I'm doing? No problem. Go somewhere else. You're fired." And and that's and how did, we right? ended up. And they did. And, and if you look at Calgary today, you know, you're in the oil gas space. Ask around how many oil companies have hired Venezuelans from Venezuela. De Mesa. Probably one in each company. More, many more, because it was it, they were great professionals. They were running one of the top oil companies in the world, and all of a sudden they were left without a job because of their political beliefs yeah and uh many companies happily scoop them up
0: right and then i don't want to laugh about it but it's just like you kick all the engineers all the smart people out and you you find that you're going to have problems with that energy infrastructure and rolling blackouts the inability to actually keep wells up and running like all that stuff
1: our, our oil exports are down to i have to check the numbers but i think they're sub a million barrels per day when uh, when we were producing, I think when he took office, we were producing somewhere around the order of like 4 million barrels per day. Uh, so it's, it's been decimated. Um, and, and yeah, so I guess going back to this, the original point I was trying to make was that bad money never dies. Like most people will always be thinking about how they can get more free money, right? And they, they don't really understand or they don't, because it's really hard it's really hard to make the connection of government's printing money. Therefore, I'm going to be made poor if I don't have assets. Like it's, it, That's a connection that is very, very hard to make. It took me a long time to make.
0: No, um, I mean, yeah, especially as you have politicians and the, the Ministry of Truth, as you've just described, uh, sort of sending people in the wrong direction right, and framing the narrative or framing the, the boundaries from which conversations around these topics can happen in, in areas where the problem doesn't fall within those boundaries right like here in america red team versus blue team left versus right um and trump's trump's the problem biden's the problem and nobody's ever really given the opportunity to debate whether or not the money's the problem
1: uh, yeah 100 percent. like i think it, if i had to bet i would say that you know it's more likely that if if real estate prices start getting off the chart in the United States um, it's more likely that the messaging is you know you got to stop speculating on houses guys like you know third three four houses like let's put a cap on these investment properties because these investors these speculating impresarios are driving up the home prices for all of our Main Street America people. It's not hey guys, we printed more money so it's natural that you're protecting your wealth by purchasing hard assets like homes they'll never say that. um they'll say that these actors are going against the best interest of their average american so that's kind of where i'm going at it's like it's this ability to shift narratives that is is for example like if bitcoin continues to grind higher they'll never say oh it's because we printed a lot more money they'll say it's because it's a crazy group of speculators that are out there driving the price of this thing higher and uh but at the end of the day like you you're creating this the sickness and you're lying to people about the the medicine for that disease <laughs>
0: yeah and and the causes of that disease too right like it, it's happening here mauricio like in the philadelphia area i know my cousin's a real estate agent and you tell me it's crazy like before even houses hit the market they're selling like 50 percent above what they would be listed for because people are just trying to scoop them up
1: it's you, you want to hear a crazy stat we we were on this letter so one of the things you keep we keep track of in in our newsletter is and it went away these kind of inflation signals right if if i told you that home prices in the hamptons more than doubled over the year 2020 would you believe me
0: (laughs) uh yeah because people got driven out of the city right like
1: well that in Wealthy people are looking to protect their assets, right? Their cash is melting. And because everybody's sitting out in the pandemic in New York saying, oh, where am I going to spend the next year? Oh, wouldn't it be great if I could go to a beautiful place and also protect my wealth? Hey, why not? And and so what I was trying to look, what I was trying to look for when I was putting this together was, as I was mentioning to you earlier, what's happening in the United States is a bit fascinating because the inflation... Inflation hurts different people in different ways, right? What's happening in the US, what I think is fascinating about it is that it's hurting the richest people the most because they are the ones that have the largest cash balances and they have these, um, you know, they they have to keep keep this money. They have to preserve the value of all this wealth that they have created, right? So they don't wanna have it on something that's giving them a negative real return like cash, right? Um, If you're looking at like, so desirable assets is something Michael Saylor talks about, like Mm -hmm. inflation on desirable assets, which I think is a very great way to describe it. So what I wanted to do to look at that was say, okay, what are the most desirable assets? Well, let's look at the desirable assets from the wealthiest group of the wealthiest country, right? Like New Yorkers in the United States, where would they like to buy a house? Well, based on what I know, I'm not a New Yorker, but based on what I've read around and I know, seemingly the Hamptons is kind of like the place to go if you're a wealthy New Yorker, right? So I said, that's the place we need to look for first at real estate prices. And of course, they were vertical. And, uh, and I go, okay, great. What about fixed income? What about the cost to have a cash flow of $120,000 per year for retirement? Well, at the beginning of the pandemic, you would have had to have... I think it was something in the order of like $3 million invested in AAA bonds to get 120K a year. By the end of the pandemic, that was $4.5 million to get the same cash flow. So all these assets are getting priced out a lot. It's stock market. Like I, I say this jokingly, but you know, just now we're getting all this like waves of stimulus getting pumped and pumped and pumped and pumped, and pumped right? Some of it's not even out there yet. Most stocks, if you look at the major indices, they are trading higher than they were pre pandemic. Right? What that says, it, it, if nothing had changed, if there was no stimulus pumped out, that could never be because there are insane. more. Com- yeah. I mean,
0: well, it's
1: I don't need to tell disconnect. you about Yeah. <laughs>
0: we disconnect. Like you shut everything down, yet the, the stock prices of the underlying companies skyrockets. It makes no sense. It's all. That's like, like, how fast can this deteriorate, particularly here in the United States? A lot of people say, it'll take time, it'll take time, it'll take time. I don't want to be like a doomer or anything. And I'm not a doomer, I'm a Bitcoiner. I'm very optimistic about the future. I think Bitcoin helps us get away from this disconnection. But I do worry about people not grasping how quickly things can unravel. Uh, and again, we just mentioned earlier, 1.9, 3.9, 9, that's $5.8 trillion dollars. They're about to be thrust into the economy potentially this year just by the fiscal side alone. So, and and again, like my parents own a coffee shop, my dad sent me email after email of their suppliers raising prices between five and eight percent, which is nothing nothing to scoff at. It's higher than CPI, and these are like grains prices, like bread and and uh, pastries, like things that should be included in the CPI basket, um, great American mining, the copper wiring that we use to, to build out some of the electrical infrastructure in our, in our containers up 35% in the last four months alone. I like, had the real estate developer on Kelly Landon a couple of weeks ago, the price of lumber is up like 400, 500%. Like people are stopping construction on homes because prices are too high for the raw material. My wife came out from the grocery store yesterday. Like, She hasn't been tracking it, like writing it down, but she's like, I'm pretty sure toilet paper and, and uh, paper towel prices are, are up significantly. They seem like a lot more expensive than they should be. It's like these little things. And then the Fed and, the, and their patsies and the financial media be like, oh, it's not real inflation. It's not real inflation. Like I had a Fed official from the St. Louis Fed hop into one of my threads the other day being like, you don't understand inflation. I was like, what? Like... They, like, gaslight you. It's, uh, it's very disconcerting is, is, is the only word I can think of. Because you have this disconnect and this inability to actually confront what seems to be the truth. And that's the other thing, like, the ministry of truth. Like, they confuse you. They gaslight you with what the truth actually is. And the CPI is a tool of the ministry of truth, I would, I would argue.
1: I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the CPI is, is almost a laughable joke uh these days on on what it excludes and what it includes and how they just do whatever they want with the components so they can show the number they want to show right like um you know if if, if it's you know change triple a steak for you know ground beef and all of a sudden your cost of beef is in line but it's it's really about you know they're they're swapping apples for oranges for strawberries you know and they're presenting it to you as like this uniform smoothie and it's 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 really not. Um, so you really need to look under the hood. And I, I guess why. And I don't mean to be like a like a doomsayer on this. Like, oh, people are never going to wake up. Like, the collective masses will never understand inflation. I hope they do. I really wish they do. But for the most part, even in Venezuela, I still think today, you go down to Venezuela and you poll ten random Venezuelans about what inflation is, they'll they'll give you a completely wrong answer. Oh. Like nine of them, nine of them will give you a completely wrong answer because it's a hard problem to understand, right? Like most people understand inflation as rising prices, but nobody gets why they rise right? or, or it's making them rise, right? Um, one of the things I remember going back to the Venezuela experience as, as hyperinflation was starting to get kind of off the rocker, property has been generally priced out of the average Venezuelan for a while. So property is not necessarily something that Venezuelans keep an eye on or like, what's the average, what's the price per foot of property in Caracas? Like most people have just kind of come to terms that they'll never be able to own a home. So to them, their, their day-to-day is more, oh, can I get some sort of government subsidy rental and, uh, and, and some government subsidized food uh, and I have a government subsidized job. But typically the first kind of flare ups socially happen because of food. Um, right, Because, you're, you know, as you print this money and you start doing all these programs, well, the supply chains start adjusting, right? Like to your point, the first things that adjust are the supply chains, right? And then that slowly makes its way out to the end consumer. Um, in Venezuela, the first kind of issues were happening around people's ability to purchase protein, right? The, the first issues came about through, it was because of the price of chicken and the price of beef. Uh, and I distinctly remember what happened back in those days because I was, I was very much there and, and kind of, I was, you know, we, we, I and a bunch of other Venezuelans were like the old men yelling at the sky because people were coming out complaining about the prices of chicken and saying, oh no, Chavez, you know, these guys, it wasn't, the, the rage from people never came from, it, it, the, the rage of people was never directed at Chavez or the free money that he was pumping. Essentially when, when, when chicken prices started going up, the question became, and also because Chavez was a very like, communist person and socialist person, um, essentially what happened when prices of chicken started going up was that the narrative became these uh, capitalists, you know, the, the greed of these capitalists is starving the people, right? So you need to go fix those capitalists. Right. And so, Chavez, and that's when we started seeing the, oh, union, you want the farm? It's like, here, you take the farm. And then the union came back and said, hey, you know, we can't really import the chicken feed uh, because we can't access dollars. We actually need a lot more bolivares to buy the same chicken feed that we were buying three months ago. So, it's, it, it'll be really hard for us to sell that chicken at the same price. <laughs> like, we, we can't drop the price of the chicken. Some of our inputs are foreign and the dollar is through the roof. And then Chavez, what Chavez did back when he had a lot of oil money was he said, don't worry, I'll sell you the dollars at cheaper than before. And of course, that made things work like that was a band-aid because they had all this oil money and it was just basically subsidizing everything. Right. Um, And that made it work for a little bit. Um, But governments are always in the business of staying in power. They're not in the business of solving the issue. Right, So that's something that is, is very interesting because we're also dealing with very long-term problems and we expect short-term governments to fix them. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's a big disconnect there uh, because the, the, the decisions that the Fed is making today are gonna affect this administration and the next administration and the administration after that and the administration after that.
0: Right, uh, that's like the point I was trying to drive it earlier. Like everybody wants to blame Biden, blame Trump. I, fell, I fall prey to that that framing sometimes, too, when I get a little too emotional. But George Bush started t- TARP, handed it off to Obama. Like, things leveled off for a little bit, but towards the end of Obama's reign, and you, um, you started tapering. And then when Trump took took over, that tapering sort of led to some spasms in the market and you had to turn the money printers back on. And yet COVID and Trump did his uh, his covid relief plan and now just handing the baton a bit biden is taking it to another level it's all meet the new boss same as the old boss red blue purple yellow whatever uh the incentives of of the system particularly the political system and the politicians just don't want to be the last one holding the bag so they'll do whatever is politically tenable at the time which is just print more money and then the whole time the the common thread throughout it all is the fed behind all this just basically exacerbating it and allowing it to happen and, and, and uh, accommodating this type of misallocation of capital at a mass scale.
1: Well, and I thought, you know, um, what's his name? Russ Stevens uh, made a great point uh, when you're talking about central bankers and how they behave, right? Because when you listen to central bankers and you talk to these guys, they were really smart guys. Most of them like really smart guys. And, they get it. They they get what they're doing. And there have been some voices within the central banks that have essentially tried, tried David to step up to the government.
0: David Fisher, one of them, I think.
1: Yeah. So there's voices that do try to jolt some sense into what's happening. But the problem is that these voices, whether it's one guy, two guys, five guys, they're up against a political giant, which is the masses, right? And they have to back down eventually. Um, Because the the other piece to that question or the other piece of that argument is that although it creates a lot of inequality, it may prevent a revolution. Um, Because um, I'll, I'll I'll be I'll be one I'll I'll say it you know I'm, I'm not sure if it's been said before I'm sure it has but if we hadn't been able to send these stimulus checks or the U S hadn't sent these stimulus checks and Canada hadn't done things like CERB, I I do think that there would be a lot of social unrest um, we actually started seeing glimpses of it. Uh, at the beginning, right? Like it was, there was a bunch of things at play, right? Like there was a polarization between the Trump, Trump and Biden, like Trump ended up being a very polarizing guy for American politics. And, and you had like friction on that side, but there was also a lot of, imagine if you had done all of this, but people defaulting on their homes, defaulting on their credit card, getting their cars repossessed. And then you had all this happening on top of that. It, it creates this, it can basically, can, could potentially overthrow a government. Right, and, and, and no government wants to see that happen. So it, it's always about picking the lesser of two evils. And one of the things that I think is, you know, perhaps somewhat brilliant about the system and how the fiat system and how it's been structured today, right? Is that anytime there's a big sort of external event that happens that brings the economy to like a halt or a screeching thing or, or just injects the economy with a great amount of uncertainty, right? You, you need to have a way of jolting back into form, right? And that is palatable to the majority of your constituents, right? One of the interesting things about something like, finance, like fiscal stimulus, right? Is that the people receiving the money, they're gonna be great. Like they're gonna be very happy because these were people that could otherwise have received nothing, right? The people that would have a concern about this, which is the people that hold the cash, right? Well, they have ample notifications from the government that this is gonna happen. Like this is gonna be taken to Congress and then it's gonna be taken to here. Good chance this is gonna go through guys. So like position your portfolios accordingly. And so the wealthy guys are like, okay, this is coming. Let's Let's get out of cash. Let's get into equity, into property, into Bitcoin, into this. Let's let inflation do its thing. And then we'll just get richer. Right? It's, this, it's this ability to perpetuate the people that have the assets and appease the people that have no income, both in one go. right? So I, I think that's, that's probably why this system has lasted for as long as it has, uh, because it, it finds a way of catering to the haves and the have-nots in a way.
0: No, I completely agree. And I was wrong. It was not David Fisher, Richard Fisher, uh, the former Dallas Fed chair. But I completely agree, and it's, it, it is this weird, right? Because I said this last year, like, why bail out the corporations when you should be airdropping if you're going to make people stay home from work, like, give them more money? Like, you can't. Like, that's what is causing a lot of the social unrest behind the scenes. And then that's another thing that makes me extremely bullish for Bitcoin because a lot of people are like, oh, the government's going to ban it. And you certainly have unelected bodies like the Financial Action Task Force trying to do their best to prevent bitcoin from getting into the hands of individuals and being used in a p2p fashion however bitcoin does provide these governments these politicians these central bankers that find themselves in a very precarious situation because yes they they can appease both sides for quite a while but eventually it will lead to social incohesion like you can only print and and try to appease the the rich and the poor in the same at the same time with this exact policy for so long and the the chickens or the hens do come home to roost right at some point and they will and history has shown this time and time again thousands of years of human history has shown this like it'd be hubristic to think we're not going to follow that and again bringing bitcoin back into it like i think bitcoin actually provides an opportunity like an escape hatch a uh, political reputational escape hatch for these politicians and these central bankers where they don't necessarily have to come out and say oh you guys should go adopt Bitcoin because that would incite like a, a mad exit from the, the weaker currency to Bitcoin but just stepping back and letting states like Kentucky welcome miners in with with tax breaks for uh, on sales tax for electricity letting cities like Miami um, push to bring uh, like more Bitcoin businesses into their domicile, letting Wyoming do what, what it's doing and just not necessarily tip the hat and be like, yeah, citizens go adopt Bitcoin, but just letting the Bitcoin economy flourish and naturally letting it a a little bit of Bitcoin get into the hands of a lot of Americans. Probably won't reach every American, but uh, I mean, I would imagine it's tens of millions now and and likely to grow moving forward, and you can keep those policies going on the fiat side, um, and when the hens do come home to roost, at least a significant part of the population has some nest egg uh, accumulated to, to help revamp things. It's not as desperate as it otherwise would be. This is just a theory.
1: I, I, I think you're bang on. I mean, I, 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 I interpret it in a, in a similar way. I think there's obviously huge um, consequences for a government to come and say, oh, Bitcoin, we accept Bitcoin as money because that eventually... Puts it in the same level playing field as their weaker money, and so it just creates. They, they can't do this openly. They have to find a way of, of tacitly, you know, encouraging you to do this, right, um, while protecting the sort of reputation or their brand of, of their own local currency. And going back to the point about Bitcoin as an escape hatch, I could not agree with you more. Um, why I say that is. Is, is true in the States, but even more so true in Latin America. Why? Because if you think about the, the, if you think about hard assets that hold their value and preserve their value well over time, what are those? Stocks, equity in companies, perhaps, property, real estate, perhaps, gold, you could argue perhaps over like for a while now, outside of those to be, which one would you include?
0: Uh, maybe energy, I can't even know, like Bitcoin maybe, is... Well,
1: yeah, or maybe a strong currency, but like, let's just say that it's either stocks, property or gold, right? All those three have, and by the way, it's not just any stock, it's US capital market stock. It's not stock in like the Bovespa or like the Caracas stock exchange is as good as having cash. So um, if, you, if you say these three assets are the ones that can protect your value, who has access to these three assets? The common person in Latin America does, no. certainly does not. Yeah. You don't have access to property. You don't have access to gold. You certainly don't have access to U.S. equity. So for those people, for the, for the majority of the world, in fact, affording a hard asset was impossible. Like they, could, they would have to save up their entire lives. And even then, they likely couldn't buy a house or likely couldn't buy a gold bar or something that they needed. The minimum minimum quantity that they needed to kind of get their foot in the door. Today, you can buy a dollar worth of Bitcoin, 10 cents worth of Bitcoin, you know, any amount worth of Bitcoin, and you can start saving that Bitcoin over time and then get the tailwind of inflation, right? And then have that Bitcoin value go up. One of the things that I love about my job and about what we are building at Lenin the most is we have seen clients in countries like Colombia, like Venezuela, that start sending Bitcoin to their savings accounts, by $10, $25 by $25, like every week, they send a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And one case in particular, who's now he's become relatively close to me because I've seen him from so early on basically saving up. He is a guy that mines, he lives in Venezuela. And uh, once he hit the minimum collateral amount to access a loan, which we issue loans at $500. So when he hit when his Bitcoin and his savings account hit thousand dollars worth of value, he was able to apply for his first loan and he used the $500 to buy another miner or like parts to fix another miner and to keep it going again. And he, he reached out to me personally to say, I can't thank you enough for what you guys are doing. You guys are the first loan I've been approved for. <laughs> and uh, to us, that's like, that's like everything, you know, to, to, to obviously we love high worth clients. Like, They're great, but like to be able to to enable someone bootstrap a
0: small business, right?
1: Yeah, and and remaining wealthy, right? Or like at least preserving the little bit of wealth that you have, right? Like how frustrating is it to accumulate, you know, I don't know, a million bolivares over a year, only to wake up one day and and because of a decision that the central bank made, then your life's work is halved. Yeah. and so, you know, to us, like Bitcoin does provide this escape little vault for small people more so than big people. Of course, big people get into it quick and they figure it out, right? Like and then you got Michael Saylor, you know, raising billion dollars to buy more Bitcoin on their the company, and you know, guys like Elon Musk buying, you know, Bitcoin for their for their for the Tesla balance sheet. And like, of course, the really smart guys will get into it, but it doesn't price out the little guys. Right. And so I think that's very key because it's about access almost.
0: Then, then, then... no, right. And because like Bitcoin, you can accumulate it with your time too. This is like Paul talking with Paul Toy last week. And we've been talking a lot since we recorded that podcast on Sphinx Chat. And and what he's describing, what they're doing at Stackwork by just getting preloaded Android phones to people in the Philippines and Argentina specifically. Uh, and basically having them do mechanical Turk-like tasks to earn Bitcoin, he, he's becoming, or I don't know if he's becoming, but like he's articulated um, in, in public Sphinx chats and in our tribe, so I feel comfortable saying this, like a lot of people focus on the, the path to monetization being store value, medium exchange, unit of account, or like just seeing what he's seeing at Stackwork, Like the the opposite is also true and will probably be the way it happens in in countries where where people don't have access to other hard assets. And so it'll be unit of account first. They'll work for SATS. And then they'll they'll get those SATS and they'll get onto platforms like Sphinx or or Ledin or Bitrefill, whatever it may be, um, where they can use their sats as a medium of exchange and then they'll basically bootstrap a quality of life that that makes them able to get up and work and, and uh, fulfill the lower part of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and then they'll, they'll begin to see it increasing in value and then they'll, as it keeps increasing in value they'll, they'll siphon in a way as a savings account um, and that's like the beauty of being able to do work anywhere in the world and receive Bitcoin for it is another aspect that really gives the little guy like a chance to get in and actually build themselves up slowly over time.
1: That's that's a fascinating model. I, I would love to learn more about that because I think that's a almost like it's 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 uh, it can provide a profit, but it's also like almost humanitarian work, you know. Right. So it's uh it's it's not often um, it's not often actually we 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 we, we, we had a, an investor say this to this say this to us recently, which I thought was probably one of the nicest compliments that, that we've gotten in a while, and and his conclusion was after hearing our story and kind of what we were doing is like, it's not often that you see companies that get to fulfill a great mission and also get a financial reward out of it. Uh, I think that case in particular is, is resonates tremendously with that for me. Uh, and I think you know what we do in a certain way as well, right? Like we let people all over the world save and earn interest and, and access loans at rates that they would otherwise never have access at home. So it does, in a way kind of take more than just one box right because it, it, it does work that you can feel great about and at the same time it can make you some money right so uh, it's not often that you you, that you have that setup
0: yeah i mean not to blow myself either here but these flares behind me like we're able to make a profit by helping reduce methane like it's like well wow. <laughs> dude queens.
1: i i i'm so i'm such a fan of that model Uh, I I, I just have nothing but great things to say and the kudos um, to you guys for essentially because you know I guess when you're having to go and talk to like the oil and gas world to convince them that Bitcoin's the future and I think you know uh, a lot of people say oh like some industries are set in their ways and they're old school you know I would argue that oil is probably one of those (laughs) oh they are
0: they're a they're stubborn bunch but we're dragging them along don't worry yeah no but it's like crazy And uh, the, the fact that this is all global, right? Like just focusing on what you're doing and like people like Paul at Stackwork, right? Like, so I'm looking at it, their site now. It's nothing crazy, but it's material for some people. They paid out uh, 269,000 sets. So that's like 120 bucks, but to, to people working in, in areas where they wouldn't have the opportunity to have a job in their local spot. And so they're getting paid in sets Then they're getting this phone with preloaded software and they slowly pay off the phone over time and then they get to keep it and but like they're, so they're getting these phones and they're getting access to the internet which presents other opportunities where they go get other jobs maybe they are earning sats and stack work but then they use that phone to to do some other online work for bitcoin um and yeah i really like that idea that it can help bootstrap people in precarious situations um and you just got to get them access to to a phone and a, and a digital job and then getting them access, like, giving them the ability to leverage their capital and reinvest in them themselves um, is another massive thing too. Like the the products that you guys are providing, and potentially earn interest on their Bitcoin if they if they want to, um, and sort of grow that if they have a stack that they have set aside. That feels like it's all happening, and people hate on Bitcoin. Why, why are these people hating on Bitcoin? It's providing so many opportunities.
1: You know it's- I think some of the hate may come from um, just the fact that, you know, no no matter how fair you try to be when you're distributing a new asset, there's, it's just never gonna be equal, right? And it's just never gonna be, you know, there's always gonna be people that manage to get, you know, learn about it earlier or get into it earlier or were exposed to it earlier. And I think some of the resentment comes from a little bit of that place right like you know oh here you guys are you know just making money because of the decision you made 10 years ago like they they try to kind of blanket everybody and it's more of a i think sometimes again i don't want to speak for everyone i, I, don't, I don't even know what a no-coiner mind feels like but <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a very foreign concept it's so long ago but, uh,
1: <laughs> but to me you know, and I remember when I first got into this, and I first started reading about Bitcoin. I was like, "Oh man, I wish I got this into this earlier." You know, what was I doing in 2012? You know, or 2013? Like, um, but but once you get over that, you 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 understand how many more people it can help, and and how much how much of an impact you can have by joining this like this movement, right, and trying to drive it. I think the people that look at it and go, oh, you know, um, you guys are just lucky. This is just a bubble. Like there's an element of, you don't understand inflation, really. You don't, you don't really understand the problem that Bitcoin's trying to solve. Um, and the second one is, you, don't, you haven't benefited from it in any way. Like if anything, you've had to deal with like some annoying guy in your class or that you know, or some young kid that, you know, was a rebel and all of a sudden is a millionaire uh and, and you know it, it just goes against certain parts of people's character or certain people's characters and it just becomes a hard pill to swallow to say yes you know i'll i'm okay with you know these guys i got in a while back doing great because it's going to help a bunch more people it takes a lot of maturity to get there right and and yeah I, and that, that's kind of what i would what i would pin it to i think it's just the lack of understanding for the most part
0: yeah yeah, don't let pride get in the way, freaks. If you're no or listening, just curious about what's going on. You peeked into this episode for some odd reason or a good reason. Could have been a good reason. Don't let pride get in the way. It's still early. It's still very early. There's so much. There's so much to do. There's so much going on. We're literally potentially building like a new internet on top of Bitcoin with like what's going on with Lightning and stuff like that. I guess that's another topic to to roll into for like Lead and you guys. Have you guys been following Lightning, the development of any second layer solution, whether it be Liquid, Lightning? I know you guys are in stable coins and that's been providing a ton of value to your users as well. Um, How are you looking at the stack being built on top of Bitcoin right now and and looking to incorporate that into what you guys are doing?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So um, we have a lot of clients, like we have clients that are large and small, right? Like we have clients that that have small balances with us. We have clients that have like hundreds of Bitcoin with us. Obviously, I think we, we try to view this as people that are going to love our products are people that can benefit from our products, right? And people that can find value in our products, right? I think like layer one Bitcoin is still pricing out a lot of people uh, from transacting, particularly in the small end of the spectrum, right? Like if you're somebody that has, you literally, and a lot of people just have a couple hundred bucks worth of Bitcoin, right? And if you're being asked to pay 20, 25, to, to transact that thing, uh, it, it becomes, it prices you out, frankly, right? Like it prices you out of this unit of account settlement type of, of, of desire, right? Um, so, I, so I think what I'm most excited about for Lightning is this ability to seamlessly, basically bring the same experience of a person that has a full Bitcoin or a half a Bitcoin that it can, can really can, can handle the friction of transacting because of the price, because you're buying something that's much more expensive or investing in somebody that has much more upside. So bringing that same level of comfort and control to somebody that has you know, 0.001 Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that is something that makes me very, very excited. So one thing actually that, that not a lot of people know, and, and we're going to be making uh, more of an effort to essentially make this more widely known is that transfers within Latin accounts are free. So um, because in a way we operate as a bit of a a side chain, um, you don't have to go through layer one settlement to essentially send from my Latin account to yours, Marty. Like we we wouldn't have to go on chain to do that, right? Like we could just make a side chain entry and so that you don't have to pay those $20. And we are starting to see a lot more people use that option, Um, especially during congestion times, right? Because it's a a pretty interesting value proposition to say to somebody, hey, I'm going to send you some Bitcoin. Oh, by the way, I'm I'm going to send it to my Latin account anyway, where it's earning interest. Can you just send it to me here? And by the way, it's going to be free. Um, We're starting to see a lot more people do intra-Latin transactions. And the really cool thing about that is that because we've built a large contingent of clients in the U.S. and a large contingent of clients in Latin America, we're starting to see that flow basically across the two polls and it's fascinating to us because it's it, you know people are smart right like they they see how they can basically get what they want done and they'll, they'll if they find a way to do it in the way that they're comfortable and it's cheaper for them they'll do it and so that's that's something that we're really excited about now imagine if you know sending bitcoin onto Lenin costs you fractions of a dollar and then withdrawing your bitcoin from leden if you're somebody in colombia where it cost you 25 cents versus $25, like that unlocks a brand new demographic. So that's something I'm really excited about for Lightning.
0: Yeah. It's it's powerful. Like, yeah, like it's getting linked into the podcasting 2.0 platform and having freaks stream of sats. Like it, it, it's just, we can probably check my phone right now. Like, yeah, it's got like, i turn i'm on airplane mode so i'm been getting notifications but like if you go down here you can see like boom 17 sets 16 sets 17 sets like incredible, every minute man. and that's what like five cents if that like six cents just being streamed directly that's even, incredible even less than that but no it's just like it's possible right like we can and like it's, that it's here. <laughs> it's,
1: five, five cents at scale, man. Like one million people paying five cents. That's up really quick.
0: Right. Right. And like, like even that, like, if you, we, I do want to touch on like the interest bearing accounts, because that's something we were talking about a few weeks ago, like the duration matchup that you guys are working on, on the risk management side. I thought that was really fascinating. And like, hypothetically, that's something you can do. Somebody just puts um, collateral, up or locks up Bitcoin in a savings account and they're getting small amounts. Could you hypothetically like pay out in lightning like automatically? Like right, like something like that.
1: Yeah. I mean we so it, it like the the streaming element would be more so if you're getting the the um the interest payout I guess somewhere off platform. Mm-hmm. You know, because we can we can stream it in platforms as long as you're not pulling it out on chain then you wouldn't really you wouldn't really feel the difference. But uh, I, I agree with you that no Lightning unlocks a lot of use cases, a lot of use cases. And, and particularly, it makes the use case for remittances all that more attractive because it, it really drops the cost of transacting down to, like, pretty much zero. Um, and so, but, but no, I mean, that, that's kind of, I envision our first sort of implementation of Lightning to be this option to allow people to send and receive Bitcoin with much less friction. You know, I think before we moved into anything else, that would be the first place we were going to go, uh, essentially to adopt this and to, and to make or, or make the platform even friendlier for a lot of people that, that have, you know, smaller balances. But I'd love to get there, you know, if you want to get into the interest bearing accounts, I'm more than happy to, to get into yeah. those because, you know, we love we love talking about those. I mean, yeah,
0: I can hear the, the freaks screaming in the background, rehypothecation, like too much risk, is it worth the interest rate? Um, markets demanding these products, people are bringing them to market. I'm here to talk to somebody that is about how they're doing and how they're managing risk. And again, like Mauricio, we talked about it two or three weeks ago. but they, like one thing, one way you can manage the risk, particularly is interest bearing accounts, is matching up like durations on the back end of of how that's being lent lent out on the other side, and how long people plan on locking that up on on the on the lead side. Correct.
1: Yeah, so one of the things we have to uh, manage is this concept of what happens if everybody shows up and wants to Bitcoin back on the same day, right? Like, do you have the structure on the back end to facilitate that? And that's something, obviously, we thought very long and hard when we were setting up the account. So the answer is yes, we do. Um, and, and the way we structure that is essentially, whenever we lend Bitcoin out, um, we have callback periods that are within or smaller then our terms and conditions times to return that Bitcoin. So we've, we've thought about, we'd like to think as, as long and as hard as you potentially could from a user standpoint, from a client standpoint, right? Like if I'm gonna use this product, what are the questions that I want answered, right? Like, what are you guys doing with these? How long does it take to take out? If, if everybody showed up at the same day, could you be able to do it, right? Like how much risk are you taking to get this interest rate? like? is the same is this risk profile similar to other platforms they, they you know i think the, the the trickiest part of this whole thing that i just said is probably that last piece right is this idea that all yields are the same like right now you you show up into a lot of these interest ranking pages and you see rates just stacked up on each other as if they're like apples that are at a you know <laughs> at, a, at a grocery store and they're all the same apples and i i, I have to say like that's Although those those pages are helpful for people to get an idea of or benchmark where the industry is at, there is incredible nuance between one rate and the other, and what risks people are taking to get there, uh, and and essentially what the underlying driver for those rates are in the business, right? So, um, I think the, the what I would, you know, what I would welcome. Um, People that are interested in these products do is get you know try to get on the phone with, with us. Like we take calls with our clients all the time um, to essentially explain to them how we're managing risk, how we're making that yield of, like possible. You know, answering exactly these questions. Like if I showed up and wanted to withdraw my coin, you know, how long would it take? Could you do it? How do you protect against this concept of everybody coming to withdraw all at once? These are things that we have thought through at depth. And you know, we've done our absolute best to structure these in a way that people are gonna you know, what you see at Lennon is what you get, right? And and we like being very transparent about A, the potential benefits of using the account, but also B the potential risks of using the account. And so um, we 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 just think that's the best policy is to tell people exactly you know what you're doing as best as you can and what they can get and what they should expect. Right, and and so that's kind of how we've been approaching that. But if there's any one of those areas that you'd like me to like dive deeper on, I'm I'm happy
0: to. Uh, no, I mean the duration matching is very interesting, right? Like how do you prevent a run and make sure that all your customers are liquid? It's uh, yeah, it's like a hot topic in the space right now. And I, I guess um, without calling out anybody in particular, but I'm sure people understand what i'm talking about when i ask this question but like are you guys doing any trading um in bitcoin exposed products yourself like on the back end and if so like how do you manage that or like i guess people are most worried about like rehypothecation risk like on the other side if you're lending your bitcoin to lead in um and then lead giving that out to somebody who's using it to margin trade and they get called like how does that domino effect affect the, the end user at the end of the day
1: yeah that's a great question so to date, we have not participated in any trading uh, or any kind of trade opportunities directly through it. Our activity has been basically uh, aggregate Bitcoin and lend them out to our institutional counterparty, which to date has been primarily Genesis. And so that's, that's and we're very transparent about that on our website and, and to all our clients. So that's, we don't have any direct exposure to things like the GBTC trade, to, to give you an example, just to, to put it out there, right? The industry itself has some exposure to the GBTC trade because a lot of the people borrowing from Genesis were trying to participate in trades like the GBTC. So I I think, and again, we like being very, very transparent, right? Like the industry as a whole, like the industry, the lending industry has some exposure to that trade itself because for a long time, that trade was a cash cow for many lending companies that were essentially booking a 17% premium, it was, it was almost free money in a way uh, for, for anyone that could do it for a long time, right? So what I think will happen ultimately from this is that there will be some rate compression because there are more and more people wanting to earn interest under Bitcoin. So there's a lot more Bitcoin available now to be lent out and to essentially, to, 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 to be lent out to do these types of operations, right? And then the other piece of that is that there is an army of sophisticated investors that used to be only in equities and used to be only in FX that are now seeing the opportunity in Bitcoin and they are entering in to arb out these inefficient markets. So that's making the trades more compressed and it's basically upping the quality of the participants in these venues and and the supply has essentially Grown tremendously, so those those two dynamics eventually lead to rates getting compressed overall.
0: Hmm. And I'm just wondering, like, where are the next like arb, arb opportunities? Now that GBTC has been compressed to a discount, like mining equities, <laughs> that that's like a no, hot... no,
1: like no. I mean, listen, there's there's a there's a there's a quite a few um, you know market neutral type trades that you could do, like future versus basis. I think is gonna be pretty much the benchmark for going forward uh, you know i think that's uh you can still get some really good rates right now uh by doing that um the, the volatility like the options markets are you know most option contracts have volatility north of 100 <laughs> and so that's a market that is right for for competition and maturation as well so those those are two interesting uh opportunities and then there's the other piece of you know, Bitcoin doesn't have a central market, right? So there they will always be opportunities for people that want to market make across different venues and are comfortable with the risk in those venues to essentially uh, try to arm those markets out and bring Bitcoin rates more to be more uniform across venues. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Why do you think people get... I mean, I think... A lot of people throw their up arms up around these products, is uh, truly out of the um, the goal of helping make sure that people don't lose Bitcoin, which is like as a company, that's the last thing you want to do, right? Like you never want to liquidate customers on the on the lending side. You never want to you know, divvy out Bitcoin on the on the uh, interest bearing side to to people on the back end that you think you're going to lose it. So. It's and then again, like this, these products are being demanded by the market. You're coming in and trying to uh, provide that that utility that people are seeking out. Um, And it's like, yeah, it's a much maligned part of the industry right now. People get very emotional around it, and I understand. Um, It depends on your risk tolerance, right?
1: Same here, man. I was a Bitcoiner before I was a lender. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Uh, so I I I I completely can relate to those to those concerns, they were questions that I asked myself at the beginning too, right? And I think that if I could kind of bucket the two biggest fears or the two biggest sort of rebuttals from the Bitcoin community to these types of products, I would put one camp on the not your keys camp. So they're, they're very much about custody and you just lose this whole power of custody and the transparency and the control that Bitcoin gives you by A, having custody running your node. I, I, I that's something that I understand where we, um, so first off, we, we we won't ask you to ever concede the custody of your Bitcoin in exchange for nothing, right, like, that, nobody will do that, right, and so w- when we do this, you know, the best way that we have found to provide these services in a way that is comfortable for our clients, and it satisfies the, the you know, the interest of, Regulators like Canadian regulators or like FinTrack and things like that, like uh, know, know your client policies and anti money laundering policies. Like the best structure that we could think of to offer these services was this custodial format. Um, and what that allows us to do is sure, you're foregoing the custody of or you're the self custody of that Bitcoin, but you're doing that to get a loan right? And then with that loan, you're going to solve another issue, or you're going to save money that you would have paid otherwise on capital gains tax if you would have sold that Bitcoin. So it's always a trade-off between the value that you're getting from using our products and the, the, the fact that you're giving up that custody, right? What We, we also don't sit still. We, we, we know that it's a huge responsibility to have custody of someone's Bitcoin. So we want to show people that we are Doing what we say we do, and that's why we are so gung ho about proof of reserves, is because we want people to know that we're accounting for things properly, and we want people to know that what we're saying to them that we're going to do is in fact what we're going to go do, right? And we, although there are, uh, although there's 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 this hard fact that you have to give up custody to access our services, we try to make that process as transparent and as upfront as we can. Right. And and that's that's on the on the custody side. Um, and what was the other uh what was the other bucket that I had? So it's the it's a not your keys camp. I forgot who else I had mentioned. I'm I'm drawing a blank here.
0: And the risky, like here your counterparties on the other side camp or like the short sellers, everybody's like, oh, they're short sellers. The short
1: sellers. Oh man, yes. Then we're gonna be started on that one. So a lot of people assume that you you know, any savings account is just lending Bitcoin to this evil hedge fund that is just short Bitcoin, right? That is very much not the case. <laughs> um, you know, uh, going back to, again, we, we lend directly to our, counter, to our institutional primary institutional counterparty, which is Genesis. So they um, are the ones that in turn are lending out Bitcoin to these prop traders or, hedge funds, et cetera, that are taking these trades. So I, I don't necessarily have an exact pulse on the percentage of borrows that goes to shorting, but if I had to guess um, at its peak, it was probably around 20, 25% of the total sort of lending activity. And if you ask me what it is today, you can look at the long short interest and in platforms like Bitfinex using TradingView, those things are at record lows. Um, perhaps some more people are starting to short Bitcoin at these levels, but as of two weeks ago, they were at historic lows of short interest. Like nobody really wants to short Bitcoin right now.
0: Like, hypothetically, they could be theoretically, they could be going margin long with that too, right? One hundred percent. Yeah, it's like it's, you can still get liquidated on that the price goes down. Um, but yeah, it's just so. Like, do you do you do like a a risk assessment of how much value, I mean, and would you even be able to? So now I'm putting like my fund head on and I like got a fund. We were in a very, I worked for a very uh, conservative fund, Managed Futures, which is a conservative part of the portfolio. Um, and, you, and just think about value at risk models. So like I'm thinking about the funds that would take that Bitcoin on the other end. And that's what I think a lot of uh, individuals who haven't been in finance don't understand it. Like concept of value at risk and, and sort of the mandate at the fund level at the LP level that you're only allowed to put a certain amount of risk, especially if you're for certain funds, not every fund, obviously and some, some have like high yield mandates for allowed to take riskier bets, but there's others that are only literally allowed to put a certain percentage of the overall fund value at risk at any given point in time to, to limit down downside risk. Um, so and that then. And so me explaining this is like, could you as lead in, sort of evaluate your counterparts and their value of risk models to make sure like they're not allowed to put all the Bitcoin to give them at risk or something like that, or could you even do
1: that? Yeah, hundred percent. So maybe maybe I'll spend a minute to talk about some very exciting key hires that we've done to, to help us on pretty strategic parts of the business. So somebody that we brought on that we're incredibly excited about, I think I already mentioned this earlier, was John Glover. So John, uh, like I mentioned, he, he helped us. Uh, he's, he's helping us essentially build our lending desk and he is what you were describing is precisely that, like the experience and the skill set that he's going to bring to the table because he's been essentially analyzing counterparty credit risk and, and credit risk, risk itself uh, for decades and, 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 and talking to these very seasoned uh, you know, funds, financial institutions, banks mostly, right? And, and that is really, uh, you know, if, if I put my lender hat on, my institutional lender hat on for a second. That's really the, the the dream counterparty that you'd like to have from a risk management standpoint is a group that is incredibly well capitalized in the billions of capital and that has a small crypto component or Bitcoin component to their strategy that makes up probably no more than ten to fifteen percent of their total um, you know activity and that is in a way uh, that is one way of getting yourself comfortable uh, and and also if this fund is also in a in a in a strongly regulated jurisdiction where there's like strong compliance and you have audited statements, et cetera, um, that is a, what I would call a high quality profile for a borrower of these types of assets.
0: Yeah, yeah, right? Like the, the Bitcoin part of the funds so small that if they did get liquidated, they'd, they'd have to pull in assets from from other parts to, to fulfill that net margin. Yeah, makes sense. It's like, but it's like these little nuances that a lot of people don't get um yeah. there is and risk then, I, you know like we're, we've been talking about the whole time like you guys are upfront with the risk it exists but you can mitigate it to a certain extent right
1: to, yeah to the best of your abilities right like yeah. and then the other piece that um i'm very excited because i i've been i've been needing some help on the marketing side for a while is that uh, mario gibney is actually joining us
0: oh hell yeah
1: yeah so uh He's been a great friend and a longtime client. So we're very, very pumped to, to have him join our team. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's been around the space for quite some time. And so, yeah, very, very excited to have him join us. He should start actually in, in a couple of weeks.
0: Hell yeah. He was at Blockstream for a while. Um, been around the space, been talking about Bitcoin. He's part of the, Un, he's on the Unhash podcast every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. He's on the Unhash <laughs> podcast as well. Um, yeah, he is. He knows his shit.
1: Come yeah, on. Thanks, man. Yeah, no, it's really smart guy. There's a bunch more people that I can't share just <laughs> now, but uh, but we're we're very excited at that. Just the the amazing people that are saying, "Hey, guys, love what you're building. How can I? How can I add value?" Uh, and obviously, if anyone listening to us right now loves what we're doing and would love to come work for an amazing Bitcoin company. Um, I welcome you to both check out our website and even email me directly, Mauricio at ledin.io. Send me a resume uh, because we're growing the team quite dramatically um, over the next call, at three to six months, and, and we would love nothing more but to have more bitcoiners join the family.
0: Yeah, no, I'm pumped for you. Like I said, like we've had many conversations throughout the years, and you've been grinding, you and Adam. And uh, I remember a conversation a few weeks ago. We were talking about like March of last year and how how low the low was and like how desperate it can get but if you grind and you keep on grinding keep on showing up like good things will happen especially if you're providing the market with a good product so i'm extremely pumped for you guys as well it it hasn't been easy and that's the other thing it's like people like oh it's an overnight success but it's like now you've been i've been watching it from afar freaks not afar but i forget when we first met had to be like 2017 2018 um and it's it's been a grind right
1: yeah i think it was at the arepa cafe in or there, there was a venezuelan party yeah, in new york was, is that is that where it was
0: 2018 i think yeah consensus 20. yeah
1: something like that something like that yeah it was, it's been exciting man i still remember that day um uh, i'm i'm a huge fan of this pod for as long as i can remember uh so you know getting it having a chance to, to well hey you know the first time we were here i still remember um you know how excited Adam and I both were to like be on this show uh, and, and like just share our story with people. And uh, I remember on the way in, um, we were walking across the Brooklyn Bridge. And uh, as we were walking through the Brooklyn Bridge, I got a phone call from one of our, at the time, one of our first clients. And, uh, and he basically saying, well, I, I, I'll have to check with him before sharing his name. But he basically told me, guys, love this. I have loved my first loan so far because at that point we were just turning about a year old. And uh, he's like, I really love, I know I love the service. Love you. Love you guys. Thank you guys. Your company is great. Um, I'm going to take a much bigger loan. I think at the time it was like a 75k loan that uh, the client was taking. And for us, like at that time, that was an important loan. Uh, so we were like, wow, like this is a sign. You no, know, we're work- we're walking into Marty's spot and like people are emailing us because they love the product. And just like how happy we were when we left. Um, um, and that was right around the time when we were, uh, I believe having our first conversations with the guys at Genesis. Uh, so that, that whole trip, man, was very, very memorable for us. And uh, yeah, I, was, I still remember that very well.
0: Yeah, it was, uh, I remember it well too. It's, uh, it's be- like, again, it's been, uh, that's the other thing. Like, it's beautiful to see good people do good things and succeed. And so like, I, that's why I like, I'm very pumped for you guys. And I'm happy that we were able to catch up and can't wait to do it again in the future. We've been here for an hour and a half now. I know you're a very busy man. I do have one more topic. I want to touch on you touch on with you while I have you. I want to touch on you. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> 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 while, while I have you, um, Isn't like one of the dudes who helped launch the Petro hasn't he been going around like, trying to like save face here in america recently oh, like what's going on there
1: don't even get me yeah. started i don't that. mean to put you on
0: the spot but um it's just like i haven't had the whole down low on that and
1: <sighs> okay i'll give you my my two cents without naming names. okay by 2017 any person of age <laughs> that at face value still believed that the Venezuelan regime, because at that time it wasn't even a government, had the willingness or even the most remote intention of doing something to help the Venezuelan people, I pardon my English, but I think that's bullshit. Um, That's absolute bullshit. Um, You couldn't have been a Venezuelan person of age and getting called up by someone in the Maduro camp and thinking you're going to go do something good for your compatriots. That will not fly by me. Um, That will not fly by me. What was most likely back in those days is that whenever you got a call for one of these guys, it either meant to leave the country or if you agree you're going to get a big payout so I would with every fiber in my body question the intention of somebody that said I thought they were going to go and I thought I was going to help my compatriots I do not believe that flies I I don't think that's uh, honest. Um, and, um, w- with regards of, you know, how much or how quickly a PR campaign can clean that up, um, well, that's, that's for, that's for people to decide, right? Like, you know, I, what I would just, what I would argue is that there are many of us, Venezuelans, that are actually, that, that took a lot of risk to help other Venezuelans get into Bitcoin. Speaking for myself and my family, personally, we were literally chased out of the country because we help people mine. Um, that to me takes a lot more guts than to pick up a phone and cozy or buddy buddy up with Maduro under the premise that you think you're gonna go help the Venezuelan people. No, bro. You think you were gonna get rich and it backfired. And now you wanna leave the country the same way everyone else does. And you need to clean up your face and want to, and you wanna come join this rocket ship of an industry that we're in. Um, and, you, and you basically don't wanna, you don't wanna waste your ticket. You feel like you still have a ticket and you're basically doing really hard to get on the plane. I feel sorry. For the people that won't ever do the research to understand what that actually means but i would be very careful of any kind of organization or anything that is associated with those types of characters
0: yeah um thank you for sharing this thought sorry for putting you on the spot but i think it's important to hear um your perspective on this because i have seen that going around and um it is pretty just somebody outside looking at it, it seems like a pretty shitty uh, thing to do. So I uh, wanted to get your thoughts and, on it.
1: No, man, listen, I appreciate it. I, I'm, I don't shy away from saying things that I feel are, are genuine and as how I feel. Um, you might find other people that don't agree with me on this. I will stand by what I have seen and, my, and, the, and the opinion and perception that I have formed over time. Um, cause I tell you, like, you know, I, I know that setup quite well. Uh, yeah. and I've seen people very close to me do things very similar. No, um, no, no it,
0: it, yeah. I was going to say any freaks who haven't heard Mauricio on TFTC in the past, go back. You told, you told the story of your family and the, the situation you found yourself in around Bitcoin mining, um, it's fucking insane shit man it's uh and that like i completely agree with what you said that is actual like helps get in the game putting your <laughs> putting your neck on the line quite literally to a certain extent um yeah well again like i said i'm very happy to see very good people uh having great success especially in this space and uh, it seems like Leaden in is is is, <laughs> is reaching escape velocity so I'm pumped for you. I'm pumped to see the team that you continue building. Um, Tell Adam, I said, what's up. Is there anything that we should leave the freaks with before we wrap up here?
1: Um, If you don't, if you haven't checked us out already, check us out. And uh, if you like what we're doing, great. If you, if there's something you think we could be doing better, let me know.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Mauricio, can't wait to do it again. Thank you for joining me.
1: Dude. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's always a blast.
0: Oh, you it's a wide open invite. You know that. Peace and love, freaks. T-key!